You're tuned in to the MTGG Cable Cast, 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 where they cover Magic, the Gathering Finance. All right? You don't know about it? You're tuned in right now and get ready to learn some shit. Buckle your seatbelts and light a blunt and get ready for the MTG Cable Cast, 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 starring Reptar and Thirsty, them onion head motherfuckers. Alrighty, guys, welcome to the newest episode of the Cabal Cast. There was some world shaking news uh, the week that we were recording this, which was, of course, the new Bannon Restricted announcement, which typically we would cover. However, there's some other world shattering news from a little bit ago that now the dust has settled from uh, that has obviously been kind of a big deal for people who vend magic, and that is the tax reporting requirements that have changed for PayPal, Venmo, Cash App, whatever. Mm-hmm. That's what we're going to dive into the nitty-gritty for today. Now that the dust has settled, we have wording of the legislation out and spoken to people in finance, whatever, to figure out, hey, guys, what's really going on here? We're golden. Yeah. So for me, this wasn't uh, the biggest thing in the world because I don't do a lot of business through PayPal. So I never really hit the, the threshold marker for cash i think one time i either got close to it or um hit the uh unique transactions threshold which i did not know about Um, yeah there was previously a 200 unique transactions threshold that would also trigger a 1099 sent to you it wasn't just the twenty thousand dollar threshold and this is a sweeping government change it all for me it means that a lot of smaller vendors or part-time vendors are going to get hit harder but i don't really know because like i said i haven't really dealt with this so i've just been more cash in hand which is less opaque but i still report so it's not like this is super big for me and my understanding is that for a lot of people and this change was, as you mentioned, earth-shattering because it came kind of suddenly. And so there are a lot of people caught in between that might not have thought they needed to file a 1099, didn't expect to, etc. And then they got this news in November. Yeah, and it's, you know, it's you touch on a very good point there is that there was already a threshold in place, right? And it was 20,000 or 200. And it's specifically goods and services is what it was supposed to be but i don't know personally that they necessarily followed that because there was a year that i did well over the 20 in goods and services and i didn't get a 1099 so i think one of the important things to pay attention to is here like hey guys sometimes stuff slips through the cracks it's not that big a deal and one of the most important parts about this is that this is specifically goods and services Mm -hmm. not friends and family which is what, at least for me personally, the vast majority of my PayPal business is. You know, it, and granted, Sick Deals is a spot that a ton of people use. Mm-hmm. I know plenty of vendors that literally make a living on Sick Deals. And this is kind of a bigger deal for them. And one of the most important things to do, if this is a concern for you, and I know you and I have screamed this into the sun, get a tax guy, get an accountant, please. There are so many things you can do where this change does not matter that you should have been doing for years. Did you know when you buy something, that's cost of inventory and it's a write-off? 
That was something I was going to bring up later on. I read through this, not legalese, but I went, I, that's a, yeah. a, a point I pulled out of here. And there's a lot of good, interesting information in here like that because they answer... It, it's basically an FAQ that came out. And yeah. there are a lot of layperson questions in there, and you know that that is one of them. And it was like... The question was about selling a couch. And they're like, if I sell a couch yeah. at my garage sale, what do I do? And PayPal was ba basically came back and said, uh, if you lose money on it, yeah. then you do not have to report. Nope. Because you lost money on it. It's fine. Yep. And I... I think that a lot of people do, you know, the doom and gloom is obviously, oh, this is a huge change. I'm going to be out so much money. I've got to report this, whatever. Uh, yep. Do you really do that much in goods and services? Or do you mostly do friends and family? Can you scale some of this into a cash transaction now? Is that better? Uh, yeah. Here, and it's I, I don't understand that, you know, for example, you know, say I bought a place out of Tarmogoyce for a hundred bucks. Mm hmm. And it gets reprinted two times in a year, like Colossal Dread Maw, basically. I can claim a loss on that. And I think that, you know, this more than anything to me, like, obviously this sucks for vendors because now I've got to keep better receipts. Well, you should have been keeping good receipts to begin with. Yes. Uh, come on, guys. <laughs> Secondly, like, hey, you should have been planning for eventually being taxed on this because sometimes you're going to get caught up. Look, they got Capone on tax evasion. They're going to get yep. Johnny Magic Vendor. That's how they did it, yeah. One way or another. Yep. It's going to happen. And, yep. you know, it's... Look, you've always had to declare it. A lot of people just didn't because it wasn't reported. Now it's just getting reported, so it's just be a little more careful. Yeah. You know, one of the big questions that I've been asked is, you know, what do I do with my 1099 when I get it. Same thing you do with your W-4. Just give it to your tax guy, throw it in TurboTax, whatever you're going to do, and anticipate, hey, I'm going to have to pay some taxes on this. I may want to set some of that aside. Or you can pay expected income tax on it, and every quarter pay the amount you expect would have been taken out if you were reporting. So one of the things I want to dive into is the difference between goods and services and friends and family. And like you mentioned, a lot of people operate through friends and family, and that's basically what Venmo is based on, you know, good faith yeah. transactions. And that's basically where I've operated because it's just been transactions through uh, yeah. friends and family, aside from the one time I was given money for to buy at an event through goods and services. That sucked. Yeah. That triggered a 1099 because it was... Yep. Uh, Four, almost five digits. Yeah, happened, happened to me too. Like, yeah. that triggered a 1099, so whatever. But with goods and services, that's kind of, that protects the, the buyer, correct? Goods and services, yes. If I pay you goods and services, I am protected as the buyer with PayPal purchase protection. And mm -hmm. what that means is like, hey, it's a fake card. I get to file a dispute. PayPal gives me my money back after they get involved and figure out how to sort it all out. Mm-hmm. Cool. And Great. for that, there is an associated fee. And usually what we see on uh, open market spaces is 3% added on top, right? Yeah, although now you can no longer say that publicly or you'll have your account banned. So you have to say it in private message. Okay. Yeah, but, but so, yes, it's like 3% added on. Yeah, that used to be the standard practice if you wanted to do that because there is a fee associated with it on PayPal 
unlike friends yeah. and family, which is a fee-free transaction. Do you think we're going to see a lot more move to friends and family? So I expect what's going to happen is the there will be, and I've already, you know, if anyone's in the reference groups on Facebook, over the last month there's been an explosion of people asking for reference threads, which I think is natural in a case like this. Mm-hmm. I will trust you to pay friends and family if you have a slew of references I can look at. Good faith transaction. Uh, I think that that's what you'll see more of. I think you'll see... St- like, this has always been a reputation-based industry, and yeah. your big guys, you know, that sell on Facebook that have tens of thousands of dollars in inventory at a time are already doing all this stuff. Yes. They already know what they're doing. They're not worried about it. They're just like, hey, we're going to, you know, keep doing our thing and just do our thing. I think you'll see a lot more references. I think you'll see a lot more people not necessarily like hedging deals, but hey, uh, if you take this lot, I'll knock X amount off. You'll see a lot more like, here's my list, parsing out my collection, whatever, price individual by card, take the whole lot for an extra 10 to 20% off, which I think was something that was going to happen naturally anyways, as we have fewer and fewer instances of large events happening, you know, without having a Grand Prix to go to, to sell stuff, there's been a surplus of people that are selling their cards at expected vendor rates. Okay. on Facebook and I think that's something you'll see is because people will be like all right maybe it's not worth my time anymore to eke out maximum value when I'm gonna have to pay it anyways okay. you know I, I don't want to pay this extra taxes just get 60% cut it out whatever and I think you'll see a lot more people hey can I see your reference thread because I don't want to deal with someone you know oh I don't want to pay the extra 4% or whatever it is show me your references I'll just save the 4% and you know I, I understand you're probably not going to risk your reputation and your future sales over this transaction, whatever the case may be. You know, mm-hmm. I, like when I when I get asked for references on like a five dollar card, like yeah, here's my references. Okay, can you get a picture? No, like the, you're either going to buy it or you're not. Like sorry. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's that's what I would expect to see is a lot more reference threads, a lot more trust based in the interpersonal transactions that you don't necessarily get other times. Okay. Now so. You expect us, uh, I say us, but I mean, the people who operate in that space to mainly stick with the, the friends and family model, maybe moving to goods and services uh, for larger purchases or purchases yeah. of, of more valuable items. Now, do you think we'll see, like, Facebook doesn't allow you to pay people through their service anymore, do they? Facebook pay is still a thing. People just don't use it because it doesn't have PayPal buyer protection. Okay. So in essence, it's still a friends and family style payment and if you do your work through there because this is a change at the government level you will get a 1099 for that i'm not sure if you get 1099 for it or not the one of the reasons that i've never personally set up facebook play is one you're not protected and two as far as i know it has to be set up directly to a bank account okay which if your facebook gets hacked there that goes there yeah. that goes. Okay, that makes sense. Reading through this document, there's an acronym, TPSO, Third Party Settlement Organizations, which PayPal is considered, and a, num- yep. a number of other payment vendors. So I guess if Facebook doesn't fall into whatever that is, then it kind of skirts away. But this isn't going to push people to look for alternatives, you think, right? I think maybe you'll see Cash App more. Because um, Cash App isn't 
part of the reporting. Uh, there, well, Cash App is now. Sorry, uh, I think you'll see someone will try to come in. I fully expect maybe it's Facebook. They make a payment app and they're like, eh, we'll try to see if we can incorporate in some way and do this. Mm-hmm. I think you may also see a lot more people move to crypto. Okay. Because, hey, I don't have to report income tax on this if I'm just sitting here collecting capital gains on it or whatever. Yeah, yeah it's only if you buy or sell yeah, it, it, not if you trade it. It falls into that gray area where like, all right, if you're going to let me get away with this and not have to tax it, I'm going to do that. Yeah. Uh, but I, it, to me, again, it seems like much ado about nothing because the vast majority of business is friends and family. Mm-hmm. I just, I don't see that that's going to be, you know, this will be that big of an issue except to the big guys who are already doing the things that they have to to take care of it, you know? Yeah. So, uh, I've never actually had to file a 1099. Mm-hmm. Have you? Yes. So... When you file your 1099, that looks back on the transactions and you get taxed appropriately on the transactions on the whole or those that weren't taxed beforehand? How does that work out? Do you know? So you, the way it works is say, hypothetically, I get a 1099 for $25,000 in income. Mm -hmm. I have not paid expected income tax on that. Whatever. Uh, I would then go to my tax guy, accountant, whatever, and say, look, I have this 1099 that shows I made this much money at this job. Yep. Here are my receipts for, you know, gas, travel expenses, lodging expenses, et cetera, et cetera, whatever expenses are related to that source of income and say, figure out how much I owe. Mm -hmm. And typically you can get it to a zero burden pretty quickly. uh, If you're properly keeping your receipts, hey, I drove to GPND. Uh, I get to write off my hotel. I get to write off my gas. I get to write off my meals. Mm-hmm. I get to write off cost of goods if I bought anything there. Yeah. Uh, and it's it's essentially just like a W-4. It's just you are completely reliant on yourself to make sure that the tax burden is paid on it. Okay. Whereas, you know, going through an employer, they take it out every check and it doesn't matter. Like you get your refund at the end of the year and Hey, cool. Great. I got free money. Uh, At at a 1099, you don't have that luxury. So you just have to keep track of it and make sure like, hey, I took this money in. I need to be able to cover my ass on the back end. Be that by having the money for the tax burden or having your receipts or expenses or whatever, just to say, hey, look, here's where we're at with it. Yeah. yeah. Okay. That that makes sense. And from that part or that perspective, it's a pretty easy ordeal overall but this is something where you are like you said wholly reliant on yourself and your bookkeeping Mm -hmm. then the most important part of this then for people who want to operate in the finance space right now because there are no events are making sure that you can attribute cost of goods to everything you're buying so that when you go actually file your taxes you can prove and you don't have to have everything do you have to have everything individually cog'd or just you, you don't really have to have everything individually COG'd. What I usually do is, you know, if I'm at a show mm-hmm. and this is something Miniature Market does, Cool Stuff does, Star City does, uh, you know, you sell to them yeah. and they're like, hey, can you sign this for me? You sign your signature next to the dollar amount they paid you. There's your receipt for cost of goods. Yep. And you can either do that as a total attribution of cost of goods or you can do it individually. What I usually do is I have here's my total attribution for the year. If they ask for receipts, here's my individual logs. Mm-hmm. 
have fun going through hundreds of pages of transactions to add it all up to see if the amount's right. Yep. Uh, I, I just have, I have two different experiences working with two different uh, groups. One more on uh, the surface level with face-to-face where we did exactly that. Um, both our sales and our buys were logged yep. like that, except the sales didn't require the buyer to sign off on them. Yeah. But the, and it, when that person was the seller, we did require them to sign off on it. Yeah. But that was me working the booth. Working for Troll behind the scenes everything that we brought in for from a show even if it even if we ordered it out from ourselves went back into the system with a cog but it would go in with the same cog it came out with yeah but everything was tracked and essentially it was just a way to write off the the show but that's a larger entity that has to deal with more taxes more a different tax scheme overall because we talked about uh, you have business tax instead of personal you have inventory that you need to worry about it at end of year uh, and then you know if the government decides to just knock on the door and pop in yeah and I, I think that's you know one of the things that this forces people to do is take better bookkeeping because you know I I used to be atrocious about it you know I, I didn't have a sales log I didn't have a purchase log at all I was just like well, you know, I haven't had a problem with it yet. But then, you know, a few years ago, I was like, man, I should really probably keep better track of this. And this is going to push people to start doing that. Yep. Because, you know, I, I remember some vendors would laugh when they'd see like, huh, look, at, look at them sign in receipts or whatever. Why do they do that? Well, so the IRS doesn't come and like take everything from them, which you should be doing as a vendor anyways. Yes. Yeah. And I... You know, the the one place that gets difficult, though, is if you do Facebook buys uh, and, you know, you're buying online instead of in person and how to cost of like how to certify your COG on that is a little bit different uh, because you can't you can't pay friends and family and put a note that says like play set of workshops or whatever. Yep. Because that gets somebody's PayPal banned. Or you pay goods and services but then that person has a potential tax burden on it. But there is a receipt for said purchase is, oh, I paid goods and services for this, so I bought an item. If I can say and demonstrate that this is inventory, Mm -hmm. I get to claim it on my taxes. So I know some people, what they have done is they will take a screenshot of the whatever conversation happened for negotiation that says, you know, here's the PayPal screenshot that says whatever amount, 1500 paid to John Smith. Yep. And they'll take a screenshot of the cards they got and they'll save that as like a paint document of here is this transaction. And, you know, the file name is like date, card, whatever. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the ways that I've seen people do that for like Facebook buys. I have not done enough Facebook buys to merit like keeping receipts like that personally because i just much rather do it in person so i can condition the cards and everything before they show up or before i pay and that's where like that's one thing i've seen people do for facebook sales which is one of probably like the biggest opportunities for this and for poor bookkeeping to like do you in is if you do a lot of purchasing on Facebook, keeping track of your COG and showing receipts for that gets significantly harder than it does for in person. Okay, so is, so the moral of the story then is just 
step up your bookkeeping? Basically, yeah. It's step up your bookkeeping. The sky is not falling because your friends and family payments still don't matter. Yeah. It's just goods and services, guys. Which, That's it. at that point, per, per everything you've said, you should be taking good enough records, good enough notes to reduce that burden down to zero. Yep. Wait. And... Oh, good. Oh, sorry. No, go no, 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 no. I, I was going to say one of one of the important things, though, to note is there's still, uh, as far as like a general point, so any amount over $10,000 still gets flagged by the IRS regardless of how it comes in, friends and family or goods and services. Okay. So that's another thing to keep track of is like the $10,000 amount has always been a flag for the IRS. You withdraw $10,000 cash, you deposit $10,000 cash, you write a $10,000 check. All of that flags to the IRS regardless of how you receive it. So make sure, you know, especially when it comes to bookkeeping, anything over $10,000, always track everything. Got it. Make sure that's covered. Makes sense. So for me, that, that's basically all the questions I had, especially reading through the document, which which will link. It's not the easiest to really work through. It does get kind of boring and move into the weeds. But there's a lot of good information in there. And like I said, it's kind of written for the layperson overall. You know, if you're yeah. if you're getting into the weeds and you have more in-depth questions, chances are you probably do need somebody to handle your taxes or you should be working with a tax professional to some degree. Yeah. And I, I think that's something that a lot of backpackers don't like when before I got involved with the accountant that we have now, I was like, ah, is that really worth it? I mean, I just, I can just do it myself and it doesn't matter. No, like if you have a good accountant, you will make 10 times what you are paying if they know what they're doing. Mm -hmm. Like it, it is absolutely worth it. I cannot suggest enough that anyone watching this podcast, even, even if it's not for magic stuff, even if it's just like personal, get an accountant to look at your taxes one year and see what you can do you know because if you bought a house college tuition whatever there's a ton of stuff you can do just get a tax yeah. guy please uh, a lot of people are working from home so there are a ton of write-offs for oh, that. Yeah. like we're we're looking into whether or not we want to try and claim uh internet electric etc through yeah. taxes or our company offers reimbursement for internet so which direction we want to go for that like this is definitely the time to start looking into what you can do and what you can recoup from your taxes. Yeah. So I think that's sure. a good lesson. Another good lesson overall coming out of this episode. Um, but I really don't have any more questions for you on this. You answered a, a lot of what I had and cleared up a lot of the gray area for me. So if you're ready for picks, I'm ready to move on. Let's do it. All right. So you want to talk about the BNR so we can touch on that briefly. Yes. All right. Hallelujah. Legacy is playable again. This is great. Ragavan was banned. Standard is still a giant tire fire in that format's garbage. I'm actually glad they didn't touch modern. But Legacy. Hallelujah. Ragavan is Ragavan. Gone. He gone. He gone. Uh, people in the Delver subreddit were up in arms like, what do we do now? I don't know. Go back to still being the best deck in the format. Put Delver back in your deck. Yeah. Just run Delver again. Oh, no. It's fine. Who cares? It, it it just it makes the format so much better that now there is a downside to days. And you know what? I didn't think Death Right Shaman should have been banned. 
after seeing Ragavan and seeing the same argument used that it cuts the downside of days because you get a treasure token and you get your mana back, fine. You're right. Maybe they should have gotten rid of Deathrite Shaman. Anyways, my pick, Ragavan. Ta-da! Why? Because it's just banned. Yep. And people think that this is going to affect the price. It's not. It has the price it does because of modern. Mm-hmm. There's not enough people playing Legacy for that to merit the price tag. <laughs> At least that much of the price no, tag. No, no. Sure, it's going to dip a little bit. Long term, that card's going to recover just fine. It is insane in modern, but not broken. It's a four of in multiple decks. It should still see play. And this is another kind of a market trend that I say to pay attention to. Anytime a card gets banned, I did the same thing with Rampaging Ferocidon when I picked it, and I think you're one when it got banned. Hey, this card's banned. It's really good. Eventually, it'll see some play in some format where it will be good again. Mm-hmm. Deathrite Shaman, you could pick them up for 50 cents after the ban announcement. It's like a $6 card again because of EDH. It's great. Ragvan's price is going to recover just fine. There were people on Facebook selling them yesterday, the day of the ban, for $40 each. Totally comfortable moving in at that number. I'd get like two to three play sets. I wouldn't go super deep. I would pick those up and turnaround time, it's going to be pretty quick. Yeah. Once Star City start happening, we start getting more modern events. It starts placing really well again. February, March, you're looking at seeing that price go up again because granted, Star City is not doing coverage in the way that they did. They also announced that. Uh, that said, top deck, goldfish, top eight, everything still has event reports up. Exactly. You'll still see that Ragavan is doing well. People will still want to play Ragavan. So I would try to get them sooner than later, anywhere from 40 to $50, because I think this is easily a $60 card. And I'd be looking at about two to three months on a turnaround time. Okay. Um, I just, it's such a good opportunity to swoop in, get this card, leave. It, it's just, it's too easy. Yeah. It's too easy. No, I, That's all. I agree. This is another one of those strike while the iron is hot and the iron is going to cool very quickly on this. Yep. Uh, so, you know, we, we're doing these episodes like a, a week and change ahead of time now, but this information has been in, in the discord for a couple of days at this point. And I didn't attribute a price to this card right now i don't think the market price and the average are correct because the card is honestly in a free fall yeah uh, you can buy them cheaper on facebook than you can on tcg player to your point yeah and the moment it was banned people started putting up uh iso posts yep. and yeah. people were looking to sell the card quickly um they're essentially fire selling this and they still are i think this is a, a good card to move in on one of the sneaky things about this is that i guess people forget this is legendary until you're actually playing the card that makes it a yep. commander but it's a very expensive commander and this isn't going to be this is an obnoxious card and it's not like tiny yep. bones which has a theme and people just don't want to deal with so you get kind of dunked on by your table yeah you can do a lot with mono red and the treasure theme definitely plays well in, I'd say, every version of Mono Red. I mean, hell, you yeah. can go all the way up to uh, Goldspan Dragon. It's like, you could do nothing to Goldspan Dragon, just make your treasures more effective and then start casting even bigger creatures. Like, this could go ev- anywhere and everywhere. So yeah. it at least has the opportunity to go long. 
uh, aside from modern. There there might be a little bit of an EDH prop here as well, and I, I like that aspect um, yeah. of this. And one of the other things to note is like going into the BNR, we always see spikes on expected unbanned targets. So I'm sure if you look at the twins you're pulling out, um, <laughs> my yep. my birthing pods are somewhere in my boxes. Um, you're going to see things like that come around as well. And sometimes it's correct to buy in on those and resell shortly thereafter. I think this is uh, another good example of something that you can also attempt to move in on like that. You could sit on these, like you said, if you don't want to hit the two to three month turnaround, you could probably wait a little longer to the next yeah. BNR and maybe, just maybe. So Yeah, I, I think that's an important thing too that you touch on there is, yeah, it, it's it will perpetually also be one of those cards that probably at a BNR time does see a little bit of a bump. Yeah. Uh, and that's fine. Stoneforge was another one. That was another one yeah. of those cyclicals. It would come. It would just. Oh god! The, Every time. The the line would. You you can't look at the market price on that thing prior to the unbanning and come up with a real price for that card because it would just go vertical, mm -hmm. like leading into, uh, BNRs. It would go vertical and then it finally reprinted and now we know what not reprinted uh unbanned and now we didn't know what it's worth. But like that card was ridiculous. Yeah. But JTMS never got love. Odd. All right. No. But I. I like it. It is a, a very expensive pickup overall, and if you could foot the bill, I think it'll it'll last long. Yeah, it'll definitely pay off. Yeah, uh, I'm also going with a possible constructed card. Unsure. This one is really interesting. Um, I've been watching New Frontiers from Odyssey for a really long time now. Um, Love this card. Almost a year, about nine months. I've been watching this card, uh, and. It did finally pick up around uh, call time, but the reason I've sat on it and let this graph go a little haywire is because Vilas wasn't moving. We were just seeing this kind of run on old stock, if you yeah. would like to think about it, that just kind of propped it. Like, it's a weird card. I'll go over it. So right now, CK is buying 25 at $3.70, which is great. Um, the open market price tcg market is seven dollars and eleven cents and i don't think that's real and i'll talk about that later but when i added this to my list in april of 2021 so again almost a year ago ck was buying 16 at a dollar 60 all right so they're buying more for more and uh tcg had 39 at three dollars 72 they now have 53 at 711 so great price great store now yeah looking into this card it, it really doesn't play or see a lot of play according to rec it's just not there and i i believe this has m more to do with the fact that it's just been overshadowed more so than anything else and this kind of goes in the same decks all the time big mana and group hug not a lot else aside from corona that's neither of those so we're not looking at this as an EDH or other constructed format spec, I don't think, but more, like I said, as an, a quote, older card with kitchen table appeal spec. In the last three weeks, we've seen steady, though low demand, averaging one copy per order on TCG player, which speaks to EDH play, but the average price on these sales is uh, well above TCG low inflating the market price which speaks a bit to the 
non-EDH reckon or kitchen table crowd just bundling these sales via direct or shopping at specific stores. So that means they're not looking at the prices TCG low, they're looking at, all right, I already have a bunch of direct sellers in my cart, so filter by direct, or I'm shopping this one particular store, what do they have? And I think that is inflating the market price. If we actually do take a look on TCG Player right now, there are a bunch of these for well below $7. Not that many, probably about a half dozen, but a number of them below $7.11. So a lot of what we're, what we're seeing in the data speaks to me of the kitchen table crowd. Yeah. Overall, the utility of this card is fairly high, but it's been outclassed by several other reprints and standard and supplemental sets alike. So if you weren't able to read New Frontiers, it's X and a green sorcery. Each player may search their library for up to X basic land cards and put them into play tapped. Then each player who shuffled their live, who searched shuffles their library. So it only gets basics, like some of the other options. So I, yeah. because of this and the fact that it's kind of been outclassed, I wouldn't expect this card to fall into many more decks than what we are currently seeing on Rec. So we can expect that the quote unquote big mana theme carries this forward. What we're really looking at is Shizuku Caller of Autumn. And that's kind of the blueprint for decks where you would expect to see this card now and in the future. And there's not a lot special going on, going on with Shizuku. But what people are doing with it is where you want to look. So I'll, I'll bring up stocks. So Shizuku, at the beginning of each player's upkeep, that player adds triple green to their mana pool. This mana doesn't cause mana burn until end of turn. This mana doesn't empty. So this is basically uh, Eldamri's Vineyard plus one. And this mana from Shizuku does not empty. But what people are doing is they're playing effects like uh, the original Omnoth. So your mana pool just doesn't empty. And there are a lot of redundant ways to do that. So you can just like push all your mana into your mana pool and hold it there forever until these until those effects are removed and then you're very sad. But I think that's the blueprint going forward. So you just put a ton of blands onto the battlefield and bank it for later. You just keep yep. dumping mana and banking it for later. And you want to do the you want to put your lands on the battlefield by kind of shotgunning them with spells rather than building up with mana flare effects and i i couldn't gather why that was the case but again there aren't that many shizuku decks there's a whole 37 of them it's very difficult to parse this one out and that's again part of why i think this is the kitchen table spec and not necessarily a more like involved edh player as far as the timeline goes the sales we're seeing are inflating market, and I believe the correct price is what we see at TCG low, which also happens to be about where CK's buy list is. So as quantity on buy lists have held steady, if not increased over the last nine months with prices seeing a decent increase, I expect them to continue to trend with TCG low until this card hits a critically low supply, at which point both will take off. So the numbers I always give for TCG player are uh, English, LP, and Near Mint. There are more copies on TCG Player, but they're of worse quality. So, as this is mainly an Invisibles card, again, monitoring both Bylas and the open market in the coming months will be tantamount to making a decent profit. I would expect that getting in today allows us to get out in about six months, a year at the latest. And I know those are two not at odds with each other, but six months to a year is a very broad bit of timing. 
because if a content creator picks this up and does anything with it on stream, we'll see a run and the price will just rocket to the moon accordingly. Now, I mentioned that this card has been outclassed by a number of other options and the reprint equity on this because of that, I believe is rather low. Everything seems to be quote unquote, arguably better. Collective Voyage was in Commander 2011 and again in Commander 2016. And there are several other better iterations between uh, the printing of Odyssey and the printing of Commander 2016, like Animists Awakening from Origins and Boundless Realms from N13. Both of those can be found in the same decks and they basically did the exact same thing. Just shotgun lands into play, especially Boundless Realms. However many basics you think cost seven and however many basics you have out or lands in general, you just fish through your deck for the other half of them. It's like equal to the same amount. It's ridiculous. And I think this is a card that has a great effect for a lot of kitchen table players, which remain invisible from an era in which cards like this are few and far between, meaning they're arguably powerful, but invisible. We just don't see things like this moving. It It's not a sexy card. It's, no. you know, it's not, it's not new perspectives. It's <clears throat> not cabal coffers. It's not, yeah, a litany of other spells from Odyssey, the Marari, etc. If look, if Marari wasn't printed a million times, it'd be worth way more than it is. But facts. Same thing with the Egglands. But all these cards are much more highly visible because they're going to wreck. This is not, and I think this is the kind of security in the card. Is just it's completely below board. Yeah. And there are a number of cards like this. They're just very difficult to pull out. I had to find this card from the CK hot list one day. Just again, tooting my own horn using the the tool that we built. I just re yeah. I reload the CK hot list a couple times just to to get all the cards they have, like in their strand, uh, all versions of the strand, and it just popped up one day. And I, I put it on yeah. here to tuck away for later. And that's the I've never seen this card hit stocks. I've never seen anybody really talk about this. It was no. very difficult to kind of suss out and and figure out what was going on and. This makes me interested to know what else is out there like this. It's just going to be difficult to figure out. I'm going to have to inspect our gadget my way around. But I think this speaks to a subset of cards we like to talk about. Things that appeal to the invisibles. And I, I think that's one of the biggest points to put on is like this. This is a prime example of like knowing where to look and seeing a card, which after you suss out all of the data and everything and look at it, that's where this is going. And like you touch on the reprint equity is low because it's been outclassed also don't pay mana into collective voyage it's a trap stop it people uh. anyways <laughs> uh no I, I this this is very much an example of that when you know you touch on good points it's old border mm -hmm. uh it's not going to get reprinted because it's been outclassed it just doesn't seem like something that wizards wants to revisit but there is clearly movement on it it's just not seen on edh rec and I think this is like sussing out this is an invisibles card. It's also an invisibles card that doesn't have content. And once it does, even more invisibles are going to go after it. And I think that that's when you're able to suss these cards out and you can find a card that you can firmly say, yes, this is the invisibles. Hop on it right away. Yep. I, it, it's There's no reason not to. This This card is like sitting 10 15 20 deep 
whatever. Who cares? Let's do it. Because you're going to get asked about it one day. You're going to have it. Or you're not. And if you have it, that could be the card that opens up their entire trade binder to you. Mm -hmm. Because, oh, I was looking for someone that had this card, and you do. So I guess, what else do you want? Yeah. And I, I think that being able to highlight something like that and figure out, hey, here's the Invisibles. These are the guys that drive the market. These are the guys that show up for pre-releases every three months or every month, as the case may be sometimes. Uh, and they disappear after that. They're just playing at their kitchen table with their friends, but they've got to buy cards somewhere. Yep. And it's not going to be a speculative card where you're going to see it show up on stocks. All of a sudden, it's 300% up one day. No. This is just some dude at his kitchen table that's like, I want to make a ramp deck. Yep. I'll throw in new perspectives. This card's cool. The end. Exactly. Like, I, I yeah, this, this is a great pick, I think. Yeah. It's weird. Like, the one thing that just blew my mind was looking at the market price sitting so high, but so many unique prices below market on TCG Player that just blew my mind. And it took me a little while to really like reconcile. Like, this is people that are just they're using the what do they call it? The cart optimizer. Yeah. Or they're filtering for direct. Yep. Or they're just shopping from a, a store. And just pulling inventory like that, and like that—that's probably the one thing that like really clued me in. And, and like TCG Player makes the the sales data available pretty easily. Hallelujah. Yeah, and like the one thing that we've done—I I think I can get this up—is I built another little util for us where I just parsed out the sale data, sales data, and it's just like, how is this selling for so much more? But there's only one in every one of these, and it shows up nowhere. Like. Yeah. How do I explain this to myself? And it was a really fun, a really fun exercise uh, to go through this, and uh, I'm, I'm glad it finally hit, so we can kind of have this this discussion again about the invisibles, but this way through a pick because that happens so infrequently, so infrequently. Yeah. I I think that's incredibly important. That. TCG has allowed this data to come forward mm -hmm. because it does give you a way to suss out what's going on that we didn't have before and that was always a big problem that we'd set on the cast even you know this data being obfuscated is kind of an issue because we can't really see what's going yep. on and now that it's there you're able to suss out this is what's going on with this card awesome great cool yeah but uh, other than that I think I'm good for this week you let's good? do it all right so we are at MTG Cabalcast on Twitter Patreon Facebook and YouTube. You can find the video podcast on YouTube. You can find the audio podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, I believe Audible because nobody's corrected me on that one yet. And yeah. I believe, other than that, generally speaking, everywhere else podcasts are found. Uh, again, we don't ask for rating. We ask for feedback. We've been getting some of it on YouTube over the last couple of weeks, which is uh, great. You know, we'll engage whenever we can there twitter is also really good yep uh to engage with us on and you know we've been there the last couple of days looking at bnr talking about what's going on with star city and the change in magic content as a whole and if there's anything you want to talk about there or you know even in discord just feel free join us yep see you guys next week <laughs>